It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This, my friends, is Access Atlanta. It's a new podcast that shares the best things to do, see, eat, and experience. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison, and this week we have once again as our guest, Melissa Ruggieri. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, she is here, of course, to talk about something musical, uh, something musical that happened a long time ago. And in addition, something that you can do now. Yeah. You know, sorry, I sound like B. Arthur, by the way. Ah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the way it is this week. But, <laughs> um, you know, everybody talks about Woodstock and, you know, the anniversary of it this year. Of course, whatever's happening with that anniversary festival, we don't know. Right. But a lot of people have forgotten that there actually was a giant festival in Atlanta, the Atlanta International Pop Festival that took place about a month and a half before Woodstock, July 4th and 5th at Hampton, at the Atlanta Motor Speedway in Hampton, Georgia. And, you know, in reporting this story, it's always interesting to talk to people who did things 50 years ago because you have have various... Answers to the same question sometimes. Uh-huh. There, there doesn't seem to be a total consensus on what the crowd size was. Somewhere between eighty thousand and one hundred fifty thousand, right. we're going with. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because no one was keeping track of things in those days. Yeah, and there were other things about the festival that I had heard prior to doing some reporting, like it was the first U.S. appearance of Led Zeppelin. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> it was, however, the first time anybody in the South really could have seen Led Zeppelin because they had toured the West Coast about six, eight months prior to that. And, you know, we're playing, you know, Washington State and Denver and, you know, uh, California. Right. But if you lived over here, you did not have... And and their first album had just come out that year also. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of a new band at the time and people had been hearing about them. So that was certainly a huge deal. Janis Joplin was technically the headliner, even though... Led Zeppelin kind of had the buzz, right. and it was just you know I mean when you look back at the lineup it was it was Joplin it was Creedence Clearwater Revival it was Led Zeppelin Spirit um, just a a ton of people over those two days and people people don't really realize what it did for the Atlanta music scene and one thing in talking to Peter Conlon who is with Live Nation now but he was a close friend of Alex Cooley and a former business partner. And Alex was one of the promoters right. who put on the International Pop Festival. Something else you learn when you do reporting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Alex is typically credited as the guy who put this whole thing together. Well, he did, but along with 16 other people. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that I think is so important to remember, and this is something that Peter Conlon talked about when we interviewed him, is just what this festival did for the city of Atlanta. Mm. Because 
most acts, especially um, the British acts and acts who had not played much of the U.S. before, they looked at Atlanta as a redneck city. Right. And they were like, you know, why would we play there? There's no there's you know, A, there's probably not going to be enough interest. And B, do we really want to be amongst that crowd? Right. And what the pop festival really proved was that Atlanta could be a very meaningful musical outlet for a lot of these bands to play. Right. Someone else we spoke to, a fan who went, his name, name is David Michelson. He, he's a musician here. And he went to the pop festival and he's loved talking about it. He's a great guy. And he said, you know, it was almost immediate after the pop festival that you started seeing bands like Fleetwood Mac and The Who and Savoy Brown and, you know, all these these artists who never would have come here before. And even some of the California acts like Santana. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, this is a place to go. So it's huh. kind of a cool thing. And um, here's here's Peter talking about just really what this festival wound up doing for Atlanta. So we all know the uh, story of uh, don't do the brown acid at <laughs> Woodstock, right? right. Uh, I, I can't recall. Was it Grace Slick that told people not to so. do the brown yeah. acid? I think uh, so. But yeah, there was there apparently some bad drugs going around at Woodstock, uh, and apparently there was some drug shenanigans <laughs> going on at the Atlanta Pop Festival as, as well. There's, as there's always going to be drug shenanigans yes. at a festival, right? Well, you know, one amazing thing was... It went it went very smoothly. I mean, there there really wasn't right. a lot of problems as far as security and police. I think there's another story about a naked guy jumping on stage during Zeppelin. But even that, they they handled it very nicely. Like they like gently removed the guy from the right. stage. They didn't like tackle him. But I talked to James Pankow, who is the horn player and a founding member of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Chicago played the festival. They were then known as the Chicago Transit Authority, right. as the CTA. And he told me this great story about. And he said, you know, you probably wouldn't know this story unless you were performing because it was happening backstage. That that one of the road guys, or one of the roadies, had tainted the other stagehand's water with LSD. <laughs> <sighs> so you had like a handful of stage guys who drank water with L- that were dosed, and yes. they were out of commission the uh. whole afternoon. They were laying on cots. Robin Conant, one of the promoters, told me he was working the stage. He was one of the ones who drank the water. Uh. Although he very amusingly said, you know, at that point, my body was kind of used to it. Right. <laughs> so it didn't affect me. He said he was out for a couple of hours, like having to lay on this cot. So, yeah. so here's James Pankow telling that story about what happened backstage with the whole LSD incident. <laughs> So what they're doing is this year for the anniversary, they are having a little reunion at Smith's Old Bar, which is very close to Piedmont Park. And it also will be on July 7th. It just happens to be the same date that they did this 50 years ago. And they're they're still working on, you know, who might be coming to play or anything. But they really want people, you know, especially if you went to the festival or, you know, you heard about the festival or you you just want to hang out and have a drink and reminisce and you know, because David Michelson was telling me so much about Spirit and how they just blew his mind that yeah. that they were apparently like the band that people went in not really knowing a whole lot about, mm-hmm. but came out going, oh, my God, this was like the whole true hippie thing of, you know, one brain. And, yeah. You know? And he said to this day, he's seen a million concerts. And he said to this day, that stands out as like one of the best shows he's ever seen. Yeah. So it must have, you know, it's a it was a communal thing too. You know, mm-hmm. he he said, you know, like you were saying, you, we were talking earlier about, you know, the hippie the hippie people. You know? yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, you got to this festival and you looked around because again, no social media, no Facebook mm-hmm. groups, no like minded, you know, whatever being able to converse someplace. Right. He said, you know, we show up, we look around and we go, Oh my God, these people are all like us. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, you know, and there were areas nearby where they hung out. Yeah. And so they would just hang out like in midtown, like uh you know, up uh, 10th Street mm-hmm. and uh, around there, there was um, 
an area. I can't even remember. I wish I could remember what they called it. The Strip. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, so they, they would all hang out right. there. And so, I, you know, that probably helped in spreading the word for things like yes. that. Yes. Um, you know, yes. there were, there were clubs and there were, you know, not as much, but, but there were, you know, they just hang out and, and the word would spread, I guess. It's really, it's really pretty phenomenal. You know, it's hard to find photos from yeah. the event. You know, we've been trying to track some down. I, I was put in touch with a photographer, Philip Rawls, who did take some really nice pictures. He actually um, put out a commemorative calendar for the 50th anniversary, which has some great pictures that he took. And he wasn't really even like supposed to he wasn't really like a licensed photographer. He right. somehow finagled. He worked for Atlantic Records in Memphis, and he somehow managed mm. to get a press pass. And But, you know, he was just there with his camera taking right. pictures. It wasn't really for anything at the time. Yeah. And it's, you know, th- thankfully, you know, he's got a trove. And if you go online, there are a couple of Facebook pages that people have started that, mm-hmm. you know, you could post your memorabilia. Peter Conlon has actually purchased memorabilia from the right. fest because Alex didn't save anything. Yeah. And it always frustrates him from all their time working together that he's like, I would be the one walking around behind Alex picking up stuff and saying right. like you know you should say this but you know he showed us when we went to interview him in his office he has a t-shirt from the event that he paid like four grand for oh. you know he has a pro the original program he yeah. paid four or five hundred dollars for a you know ticket from that somebody had like a pristine ticket that you know was a couple hundred bucks as well so yeah. you know if you have some of this stuff apparently there's a market for it oh uh, yeah yeah there's there's a market for a lot for of lots that kind of stuff, of stuff. music lots memorabilia stuff. Yeah. yeah yeah so I mean it's out there but um you know, as far as photos, you know, we it, it, they're kind of sparse. We did track down some B-roll footage that WSB had from, yeah. I guess they sent a reporter out that day. So there's some, you know, shots of the crowd. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you might expect, it was extremely hot because yeah. it was July in Georgia and there mm-hmm. were no shade and <laughs> no trees. But when you look at how what happened at Woodstock <laughs> yeah. and then you look back at this, you kind of go, yeah, you know, that's pretty amazing yeah. that this whole thing could come together go off essentially without a hitch. Yeah. You've got, let's just call it 100,000 people right. know, in, in one place. And everything was kind of that right. whole peace, love, and happiness vibe, you know? Yeah, and it was, well, I mean, you know, being the first one, I guess, in, in a place that a lot of people might have thought of as a backwater. Right, um, right. You know, it, it's, it, it, I guess there there probably isn't as much stuff left from it, and it was... Didn't get as much attention. Right. Um, that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, that probably helps in its low-key sort right. of success. And this, and it was the same with um, the Piedmont Park show because right. the following year, as you know, Alex did a second Atlanta International yeah. Pop Festival. And that, you know, was Hendrix and even bigger. Yeah. That had 300,000 people. Yeah, I think that was a much bigger deal. Because people knew about it at that mm-hmm. point. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really was the beginning of the festival world in Atlanta. It really changed the complexity of the music scene mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And it really is a significant moment in Atlanta's music history. And, you know, I hope now maybe people will have a little better understanding and knowledge of what right. it was because I do think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle of when you talk about festivals. Cool. Well, it was great to talk about this as <laughs> as always. I love talking to you about music. Our music conversation could could go on for an exactly. hour. Exactly. <laughs> we we could do this for hours and hours literally. Uh but uh yeah, it's great talking about this and and a, a little slice of Atlanta music history. Um so thanks so much for bringing that. Sure. And uh, be sure to check that out uh, in in the newspaper um, June on 30th. Sunday, yeah. June 30th. 
Also, we'll have um, it'll be online yes. at ajc.com. On so the you music can scene blog. Always go there <laughs> mm-hmm. to the Atlanta Music Scene blog. Um, just check it out at ajc.com um, and see the video there. And uh, go to the event on the seventh if you're yeah, in town. Yeah, and and that's happening at Smith's Old Bar on July seventh. You listen to the music, you know, and have a good time, and you really enjoy it. hippies and wannabe hippies and people that were hippies mentally but they hadn't grown their hair out that long yet. All communities fought these things in those days because they looked at it as a bunch of um, crazy hippies coming in and destroying their culture and undermining their children and youth and whatever. remember it as the first opportunity to witness Led Zeppelin live in the South. Others recall the steamy sun and hordes of, as one attendee called it, hippies and wannabe hippies and people who were mentally hippies. A month before Woodstock would garner the headlines and catchphrases as the music festival that defined a generation, the Atlanta International Pop Festival at Atlanta International Raceway in Hampton established the city and the South as a meaningful player in the music industry. Debate continues regarding crowd size, with figures ranging from 80,000 to 150,000. Regardless, it was a lot of people for what is considered Atlanta's inaugural music festival. All I remember was riding down there with my older brother. David Michelson, music fan, musician, and festival attendee. My friend, one of my best friends, a couple of us went in, and we were all going to meet up. So there's four or five of us in a car, and we drove down, and I don't remember having any of that traffic. We got there the first day, and it had started at like noon maybe or one, and we got there about two or three. But there wasn't like a program. We had no idea who was playing when or anything. And it sounded unbelievably great. Crystal clear, full power, as loud as you want, no distortion. I mean, it was just amazing. Unbelievable. We had no problem, no fights. Everybody was cool. Everybody was sharing, you know, mm-hmm. everything. It was, all of that was just amazing. No shade anywhere. You saw that they had fire trucks come and hose people down. And people would just stand there and go, yeah, please get me. Some incredible, kind, generous person bought like a full semi-truck full of watermelons to deliver to the festival and just pass them out. And so there was like watermelon rinds everywhere. People were just, you know, cracking them open. I remember that. That might be all we ate. I don't know. The lineup of the event, which took over the raceway July 4th and 5th in 1969, ranged from marquee names of the era, such as Janis Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, to relative newcomers, including Grand Funk Railroad and Spirit, to now legendary acts playing for their largest audience yet, Led Zeppelin, of course, and the Chicago Transit Authority, who would in later years shorten their name to Chicago. James Pankow, founding member and trombone player for Chicago. It was one of um, 
three big pop festivals that happened around the same time. Uh, there was one in Dallas and another one in Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did all three, including Atlanta. For us, being a, a relatively new new artist, um, it was incredibly uh, memorable and exciting uh, to be on a bill with all of the big names of the day. The first album um, was still getting its legs uh, by word of mouth. Uh, we had not gotten on the radio because AM radio did not understand our music. And it was considered, quote unquote, underground, if you can believe it. Um, it, it, it That's crazy. Uh, not ready for prime time radio. Uh, so radio had to catch up with us. Uh, and hence, we really did not have uh, a national audience or uh, any kind of uh, notoriety because uh, we could not get on uh, playlists on the pop stations. However, on FM radio, the album was uh, was growing in leaps and bounds because it had become the uh, required listening of uh, you know college students around the country. They, they mm-hmm. uh, um, decided at some point that you know you're not cool unless you have the CTA album, and we therefore spent most of our touring doing college campuses and building on that um, sector of our audience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely, word of mouth grew and grew and grew and uh, continued to do so. Uh, and not too long after that Atlanta Pop Festival and the other two, um, we were invited on the road to be, the, to be by Jimi Hendrix to uh, open his shows as his opening act. And that exposure was also uh, huge for the band. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, it was a combination of the pop festivals, which for us was uh, maximum exposure uh, uh, in comparison to the college tours we were doing. I mean, there were uh, tens of thousands of people at those pop festivals from sure. all over the country if not the world, and uh, so many of them were experiencing uh, uh, CTA the first time, so the exposure was huge. Uh, I remember being in awe of the amount of people at the site. Uh, I don't, there, there had to be I mean, it had to rival Woodstock. I mean, not quite really. Woodstock was over the was historically over the top, but certainly the biggest gathering of human beings we had ever performed in front of, and it was a bit intimidating, honestly, uh, to be on a stage and look out and see that huge sea of people was amazing. Um, I remember uh, talking to a lot of the, a lot of my heroes. Uh, backstage, I met a lot of those people that uh, um, 
were in various uh, top acts, mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, really a uh, an exciting experience for all of us because we were the new new kids on the block, uh, relatively speaking, and we felt really uh, grateful to have been given the chance to perform with all those legends and in front of so many people. It was really a big deal uh, for us, maybe the biggest thing we had ever experienced at the time. The memory of legendary Atlanta concert promoter Alex Cooley, who died in 2015, is usually invoked in discussion of the pop festival. He was a founding father, and the festival also launched Cooley's career as a concert promoter, which would benefit the Atlanta music scene for decades. Peter Conlon, president of Live Nation Atlanta, he was a friend and former business partner of Alex Cooley. It's a different time, and there was a real push to um, stop festivals like this because the powers that be, both locally and in Washington, did not like the idea of 100 to 300,000 anti-Vietnam War people getting together in any one spot. So there was a lot of political pressure on stopping these things. I'll tell you how he explained it to me. He was going snorkeling, and he was heading down to Key West with some friends. And at that time, he had a pizza place in Buckhead, and he was doing bands on the weekends because he had this affinity towards music. And they stopped in Miami, and there was a festival going on. And he thought that it was amazing that you had these groups and food and whatever. And he said, you know, we can do this in Atlanta. Alex um, had to conjole people to come to the South. One, they didn't think that it would be accepted here. They thought culturally that we weren't ready for rock and roll. They thought we all listened to country music. And he had to convince them. And why it was so seminal for us, basically in the Southeast, and a lot of people in the business know it, was it showed the agents and managers that there's a market for that here in the South, that there are people. Not only with the first Pop Festival, which sold out and had over 100,000 people, but the second one, which did 300,000 plus people, and um, a year later. So it, it, it showed a lot of people that there was interest here. Believe it or not, Alex and I had that continual problem, even in the city here, in doing shows for years. Even that, in the 80s when... You know, music Midtown, Chastain, um, Alpharetta Amphitheater. There's always people who, you know, fight or, or against, you know, rock and roll music coming into their... their, their uh, it's only recently that it's been accepted. Two days after the Atlanta International Pop Festival, the promoters felt guilty about making a few thousand dollars profit on the festival and staged a free concert in Piedmont Park as a thank you to fans. The Grateful Dead couldn't play the main festival because of a schedule conflict, but they headlined the park lineup. Earlier in the day, Spirit, CTA, and Delaney and Bonnie and Friends performed. He made $10,000, and he felt guilty. And he's a partners because peace, love, you know, they didn't, they didn't expect to make money. They didn't want to lose it. So he took that money and he did a free concert in Piedmont Park with the Grateful Dead um, to give back. Two days later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, that's what he did with that one. So, so he, he always did this, which he even saw at Music Midtown. He wanted an eclectic lineup that, that represented different aspects of a genre 
and even sometimes different genres. He wanted people to be exposed to other bands. So he liked Led Zeppelin, and he figured, you know, people coming to see Janis Joplin should really see Led Zeppelin. He never, I don't think, understood personally how much he'd done for the city. He, he understood after it happened that it had a positive impact and that it was changing things. But he also saw that on a nationwide basis, things were changing. You know, all the attention that Woodstock got, you know, that, that there was a, a, this counterculture and this music coming up, you know. I mean, it's Dick Clark prior to that. It was all those created bands and tours. And, um, you know, and Vietnam was driving a lot of the music, you know. Um, and people were, were using that as a way to express their dissatisfaction with the war, young people. But um, when I first started working with him, he was almost a pariah, you know, politically and socially in Atlanta because people thought that this is the guy that undermined their, their children, you know, that now they were going to these rock concerts all because of this coolie guy, you know, if he hadn't bought these bands here and, you know. And so um, it, it took a while for that to turn around too, you know. You know, I try to tell people that when, you know, people ask me or whatever, is it? You know, everything that happens now is because Cooley started it, you know. The festival changed the perception of Atlanta as a music destination. And with the Atlanta International Pop Festival, a new tradition was born in the city. Let's see what's happening in and around Atlanta over the next 10 days. All right. These are the events for Episode 70, launching June 27th. The work week will be a little shorter for some of us next week because the 4th of July falls on Thursday. That, of course, means fireworks, and they'll be everywhere. And while we're at it, here's your reminder to keep your dog safe on that day as it's one of the busiest days of the year for animal control and shelters as scared pups flee from the noise and get lost. Once you have that under control, there are plenty of ways to celebrate the holiday. One that's a little out of the ordinary is an evening hike up Panola Mountain. The mountaintop is only accessible with a ranger-guided hike, but it's a worthwhile excursion any time of the year. But July 4th is especially spectacular because you'll be able to see several fireworks displays around Atlanta from the summit. The hike happens from 8 to 10 p.m. July 4th. Go to gastateparks.org slash Mountain and click on events to get the details and directions or call 770-389-7801 for reservations. The hike costs $20 plus $5 parking. If it's full, check out other opportunities to see the top of the pristine Panola Mountain near Stockbridge. If you're avoiding some of Atlanta's big and crowded fireworks displays, downtown Decatur offers an alternative. It's not exactly small, but it definitely feels less crowded than downtown Atlanta or Buckhead. The fun begins with the annual Pied Piper Parade, which kicks off at the First Baptist Church of Decatur at 6 p.m., and ends at the community bandstand on the Courthouse Square. Live music from the Calumwell Concert Band begins at 7 p.m., and fireworks will begin at dark. Celebrate Independence Day from 5.30 to 10 p.m. on July 4th in downtown Decatur. Head to visitdecaturgeorgia.com for more info. Through the 1970s and 80s, Electric Light Orchestra had 20 top 40 hits, seven of them top 10s. And you get a chance to hear many of those hits as ELO comes to State Farm Arena on July 5th. The British band, led by Jeff Lynne, grew out of 60s outfit The Move, which never made much of an impact here in the U.S. 
It was Roy Wood, Lynn's bandmate in the move, who originated the idea of integrating orchestral players into a band. Many artists had used string sections before, notably the Beatles, who were an obvious and acknowledged influence on ELO. But this time, they were part of the band. Wood would leave before ELO's second album, but he was still among the musicians inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when ELO was enshrined there in 2017. Keyboardist Richard Tandy was inducted too, and along with Lynn is the sole remaining member from the band's heyday. Still, it was always Lynn's show, and reports are that this current run is a real treat for fans. Find out for yourself when ELO lands at State Farm Arena on July 5th. Tickets are $69.50 to $99.50, with the usual VIP upgrades available at a premium price. Go to statefarmarena.com to get tickets and more info. At the Museum of Design Atlanta, Wire and Wood, designing iconic guitars, explores the basics of guitar design while also considering how some guitars have become icons. The exhibition opens June 29th when guitar maker Paul Reed Smith of PRS Guitars will speak from 3 to 5 p.m. in the Hill Auditorium at the High Museum of Art. Following that, an opening reception begins at 5 p.m. across the street at the Museum of Design Atlanta. Tickets for the lecture are $25, tickets for the reception are $30, or you can buy a combo ticket for the lecture and reception for $50. The exhibition, which begins its regular run on June 30th, includes guitars played by Bo Diddley, Kurt Cobain, James Hetfield, Jack White, and St. Vincent, among others. Wirenwood continues through September 29th at the Museum of Design Atlanta, across Peachtree Street from the Woodruff Arts Center at 1315 Peachtree Street. Regular admission is $4 to $10, and you can get advanced tickets at museumofdesign.org. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Ryan Horn, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Access Atlanta.